Welcome to Thoughts on Thriving, a holistic lifestyle and wellness podcast that's here to help you become the healthiest, happiest, most aligned version of yourself. I'm your host, Ava, a registered dietitian and wellness junkie. I'm so excited to have you here as I dive deep into meaningful conversations covering topics from nutrition and mental health to spirituality and self-development and everything in between with experts in many fields. I'm so happy you're choosing to learn how to thrive today. Let's get into the show. Hi guys, welcome back to the show. Thank you for tuning back into Thoughts on Thriving. I am so excited for this week's episode. I know I say that every single time, but that's because I truly love all the guests I have on and I think you guys are really going to like this one. Today's guest is Emily Newton from Balanced Factor. So Emily is the founder of Balanced Factor, the host of the Balanced Factor podcast, and she is a translational researcher, which we get into in the episode. I honestly didn't even know what that was before I met her. Um, And we talk about so many relatable things that even if you don't have the exact same experiences as Emily you will be able to relate to these things like identity and changing your identity and leaving toxic environments and mental health, anxiety, disordered eating, like so many things, social media and the effect that that has on our relationship with food and on our wellness. And so I think a lot of these topics are just things that both Emily and I are really passionate about and that are really, really important in the current landscape of wellness and social media and things like that. So I hope you all enjoy this episode. Let us know what you think over on Instagram. And if you're a fan of the show, I would really, really appreciate if you took the 30 seconds it takes to go on Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show. This is how you can best support Thoughts on Thriving and obviously share it with a friend, share it with someone you think this will help, but that would really mean the world to me. So thank you to anyone who takes the time to do that today. And without further ado, here is my episode with Emily. I hope you all enjoy and I'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Well, I'm so excited to have you here today, Emily. Thank you so much for taking time to be on Thoughts on Thriving. I wanted to kind of get a little introduction from you before we start and talk about your whole story. So really quickly, could you just tell us who you are and what you do? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, So my name's Emily Newton. I'm from Toronto, Canada. I'm the founder of Balance Factor and the host of the Balance Factor podcast. Um, And my background is in translational research. So I work on taking existing science and knowledge and developing creative ideas of distributing it to the world. So the way I really do that is through social media and through blogging and posting and with my podcast um, so that people can help. I can help people understand the complexities of human health and well-being because as we know, there's a lot of information out there and there's a lot of things thrown at us and it's really confusing. Um, So that's kind of my aim with everything I do and through my own personal experiences with my health, I hope to help other people figure it out for themselves as well. Well, I'm still figuring it out, but yeah. (laughs) I love it. And I honestly didn't know what translational research was before I kind of found you. So how did you kind of find this field and decide to pursue this for your, you know, master's degree and just post-grad education? I feel like that's not really something I hear about a lot. Yeah, it's pretty... um... 
it's not rare, but I would say it's definitely up and kind of coming in the world of medicine and um, knowledge translation or dissemination. So I kind of stumbled upon it. I did my undergraduate degree in human kinetics, which is a kind of fancier term for kinesiology. Um, So I had a bachelor of science and I was looking for what to do afterwards. And most people will either go into physio, chiropractic. Um, A lot of people will go into medicine here in Canada. Um, And none of those really aligned with where I wanted to go. I didn't want to go somewhere where I was going to have a label put on myself and only have one end kind of career. However, you know, if like physio, you can go and do multiple different things. But I really didn't know what I wanted to do yet. But I knew I wanted to do something in health and also kind of tie in some business aspects to it and creative concepts. And so I actually just stumbled upon this program via email because my school was just sending out like check out these programs for grad school. Um, And at the University of Toronto, this is still kind of a newer program. It's only been around for I think eight years. So it's not, it's not it hasn't been there that long. Um, so I stumbled upon it and instantly fell in love with the idea of creative problem solving and innovation and health. It's kind of just aligns with who I am and everything I do. Um, and I could tell right from the interview that I was suited for it. So I was just really lucky that it, it kind of fell in my lap that way. But uh, it was not easy figuring it out for sure. I applied to so many other programs and so many other things. Um, but this just kind of suited me best. What do people in this program or in this field kind of do? I know you said there's like a lot of different options. What's like the average kind of job of someone who is a translational researcher and what do you want to do with it in your life? I I know that's a big question, but like if you have any idea. Yeah. So there's a bunch of different kind of avenues you can go with translational medicine or research. Um, Some people will go into project management. Some people work more on like the health care hospital side of things. I'm more focused on the business side of it, which is more on developing interventions that solve real problems because that's really what we do in the program. Um, Like I'm doing a whole project right now on disordered eating and we're developing an app. We can get into that later, but um, where else you, yeah, where else you can go is a lot of people will also work with startups. So um, they'll hire them as consultants to help them come on their team and really solve their problems they're going through. And the ultimate goal is really to get the consumer or the patient a better quality of life. So whatever that is that needs to be done to get there, and there's different problems that anyone could could experience throughout that journey. Um, That was a bit of a tangent, but it's just quite a large area. But basically, there are multiple different avenues, and the end goal is really to improve health through interventions. Yeah. Cool. And my last question kind of on this topic is like, is there something you've learned in your program or through doing these projects that you want to share with people? Like what's a great takeaway that you've, you kind of discovered through this program? That's a tough question because there's so many things I've learned, but I think the biggest thing is how valuable it is to work in a team. 
I mm-hmm. used to be someone who was very independent. I would never study with other people. I don't think I could still go and study for exams with other people, but I was very much like, I do my own thing. I don't really need help from other people. Not that I thought I was good enough. It's just the way I worked. And when I got into this program, it's all group work, which at first I was like, oh my God, I don't know if I can do this. But you don't realize how much you can gain from having other people support you and their insights and their perspectives and the things that you can come up with. Um, it's just remarkable. So really like the value of teamwork and working with other people doesn't diminitize your abilities. It actually strengthens them. That's awesome. And I know from, you know, following you in your story that like you also were a varsity athlete and you weren't really on a sport that like kind of was more of a team sport, like maybe soccer or something like that. You were doing track and field, right? So that's really awesome that you like had that experience outside of athletics as well to just like learn to be in a team. I think that's something I definitely need to kind of learn a bit more as well because I'm the same way. I'm very kind of independent. I want to do it by myself. Like I can't really study with other people either. I have my own method, but I think there's so much to be said about like multiple brains working together to get, you know, one goal done. So speaking of athletics and your kind of background, I would love for you to kind of share your story with everyone with your background as a varsity athlete and how you actually kind of left that environment after a bit because it wasn't serving you anymore. And um, I'd also love for you to share kind of the exact sport you did because it is pretty unique. And when I was hearing you talk about it, I literally had never heard about it before. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting (laughs) sport that I did and I still can't believe I did it. So um, when I was in high school, I kind of stumbled upon pole vaulting, which If you don't know what that is, it's a track and field event, the field event where it's similar to the high jump, but you run with a pole and you stick it in a box and basically fling yourself over a bar. Um, So it just kind of happened that the Canadian Olympic coaches were starting a club in my hometown and I was there and they were there and I was like, well, this is pretty cool. So I might as well take up this sport. Um, So I got really involved in it and I got to a pretty high competitive level. And then when it came to going to university, I was recruited for a varsity team and was super, super excited to take on varsity athletics. I really thought it was my future and, you know, I had a really good potential. There was potential for me to be really good at the sport. Um, I just have like the proper build for it and, um, strength naturally for it. But still, then again, I still had tons of areas I needed to improve on. Um, But the potential was there. So I got recruited and I went to university for that team. And the experience was not what I expected. And I only lasted on that team for a year. Um, And kind of through my story and why I do what I do now stems a bit from that and being in toxic environments, understanding that not everything's for you and, you know, that the, it, life is a lot about changes. And when, you, when you're stuck in something that's just so unhealthy for you, it's really hard to identify those in the situation. So basically that varsity team was not the right fit for me and I had to walk away, which made me stronger, but it was 
one of the most challenging things to do, especially that I identified myself as this pole vaulter, Emily Newton, who, you know, when you're younger, you have your Instagram bios and it like says who you are and things like that. And I, I left this and I was like, I don't know who I am. So it was, it was a challenge, but it was, it was a good experience still. I wouldn't take it back. And could you share kind of like why it was a toxic environment? Like what exactly happened or was it lots of different little things? Um, if you don't mind getting into more detail about that, because I'm sure a lot of people are maybe in a similar situation right now or have been in one. And I think that this could really help people listening. Yeah, of course. I'm totally comfortable. And I do want to just give a, a, a little tidbit is that I think for my personality type, this was not the right fit for me. But for some people, this would be totally fine for them. It's just me personally that this type of environment wasn't the right fit. So I just want to say that before I get into it, Um, just because I don't want to put a damper on all varsity sports. (laughs) But um, with that said, so my what was toxic about this experience was the communication style with coaches and the concept around body and food um, and relating to performance. So when I was on the team, I was under a lot of stress. When you go to first year university or college, um, there's a lot of life changes going on. And so I just wasn't performing as well as I had the year before when I was recruited And I wasn't meeting the expectations that I was supposed to be getting while I was there. Um, There was a lot of changes in my training, which my body did not react well to. I was lifting for the first time ever in my life. And I got quite bulky. And um, for the sport, you need to be muscular, but you also need to be quite lean because, you know, you have to be light and dynamic to get yourself up in the air. Um, so it was kind of working against me, all of the strength I had. And I had coaches who were kind of on my back in the corner telling me I needed to lose weight. Um, I had wow. to see a nutritionist and it became quite restrictive and regimented as to what I had to eat at certain times of day. And there were just some negative comments made about me, not directly to me, but I could you know when someone's talking about you. Right. And um, I, I could just, I could sense it. So I was kind of just trapped in this environment and I really couldn't get out of it until that year ended where I was like, oh, wow. Like I, I took a step back and I was like, this was not healthy. Um, and it also happened to be that, you know, I have very supportive parents, um, but they also recognize the fact that I was not managing well in this environment and kind of just, you know, said there is a way out if you want it. So um, I eventually came to that decision, which wasn't easy, but I did. Yeah. I mean, that's so brave because I feel like when you're in something like that, there's so many reasons not to leave. It's like you have this community, you have a team, you have your whole kind of life and identity in the sport and leaving can feel like such a kind of shock to your system, but it was ultimately what's best for you. And I feel like a lot of people, even if they don't play a sport, they have identified themselves with something in their lives. And it can be so hard to release that and realize that like, you don't really, you know, your, your truest identity is just soul. It's who you are. It's not uh, in a sport or in a diet or whatever it is. So could you kind of talk about how you started to kind of let go of that identity and anything that you did to help you realize that like you are not the sport you your identity does not 
depend on your performance in the sport or your even participation in the sport? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it really started to become prevalent to me that I could do more outside of this. When I started working on developing relationships with people outside of that environment, So, you know, growing up even, I was always in sports. I was a competitive dancer and then I stopped around the age of 16. So I was always surrounded by people that did the same thing as me. And once I removed myself from pole vault and the track and field team, because I entered school in that team, I really didn't have anyone outside of that team. So it forced me to have to go find people on my own. Um, and it wasn't just kind of handed to me. And that once I started doing that and connecting with people that were interested in more of their academics or things outside of their sport, I was starting to realize that, wow, I actually, I'm not just a pole vaulter. I'm a student, but I also am a young adult who's, who can have fun and do things that I wouldn't normally think I would do. Um, I also think that there were just opportunities to just socialize and and connect with people on a level that I I hadn't before. And those really just gave me the confidence and ability to know that I was going to be okay and not not be left behind because I wasn't on a track team anymore. Yeah, that's so important, like finding good people outside of whatever it is that you do and that's something I kind of try to strive for is like having people in all avenues of life so that it's not just kind of one kind of person in one area of my life. Cause if that area of my life leaves, then I am left with no one. And so that's a super important point I think you bring up. And speaking Mm -hmm. of kind of the disordered eating aspect of it, you brought up that there were some comments made about your body. They made you see a nutritionist. Um, I don't know if you actually ended up seeing the nutritionist or what happened there, but I know that you kind of shared about your disordered eating journey on your podcast recently. And as a dietitian, this is something that I love talking about because it's just so prevalent. And it's literally, I mean, it's affected me in my life, but it's also affected basically every woman I know and so many patients that I see. So could you kind of share maybe before we even get into your story and your experience with that? I know you do the research on it as well. So maybe the difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder, and then kind of share maybe how that's affected you, whether it's in the sport or after or however it's been for you in your life. Yeah. So disordered eating and eating disorders are one of the most complex things in health. They're, all of health is complex, but the reason why this is so prevalent is that we can't avoid food. We need food to live and people have dependencies on food for their everyday tasks. So it's not something that we can avoid. And that's why it's just so problematic because you can't really run away from the problem, even though the problem's right in front of you. Um, So disordered eating versus eating disorders is a difficult thing to explain, but I'll keep it quite simple. An eating disorder is a clinically diagnosed psychiatric illness where there's alterations in the brain that alter someone's perception, behaviors, cognition, and affect versus disordered eating is less severe 
where it's more related to distortions in someone's behaviors. So there's not less alterations in someone's brain synapses and chemistry that are initiating those behaviors. It may be social context or tendencies or um, perspectives that initiate abnormal behaviors with food. Um, so it's just kind of the area of where the two behaviors are coming from is really the difference between the two. It doesn't mean that one gets priority over the other. Eating disorders are more severe, um, but both are important issues to discuss in health and wellness for sure. Completely agree. And would you say that, once again, only if you're comfortable sharing on this, would you say that you kind of leaned more toward the disordered eating end of things in your experience, especially with the comments being made about your body and all the things that you experienced while you were in pole vault? Was that sort of the experience you had? Yeah. So I've never been clinically diagnosed. I don't align with the criteria. Um, and that's also what is problematic about disordered eating and eating disorders is that the recognition of someone who's struggling with disordered eating is quite minimal because there's basically these check boxes in the DSM-5, which is a diagnostic criteria for mental health illnesses um, that basically are based off of your body weight and um, calorie intake and certain thoughts to be able to be diagnosed. Um, so I personally never aligned with them. Maybe I did at one point, but I wasn't in front of a doctor to fully be you know, diagnosed. Um, but the whole time... I had negative associations with food, and I still do to this day. I was aware of what was going on. So for me, it was the cognition part was there. So I wouldn't say it was an eating disorder. Um, so basically, when I was on that team, this is probably when it all started. And it was just this obsession over what I was eating because I had a very controlled outline of, you know, I had to wake up and eat two pieces of toast with one egg. And then at four o'clock, I had to have a snack right before practice. And then at dinner, I was only allowed to have certain amount of carbs and certain amount of this. So it was very like structured. I had a note in my folder in my phone and I had to follow it exactly. Wow. And it didn't work. It didn't. I was still so stressed over this whole thing. And my body was just in chronically inflamed from the stress and that just kind of broke me down. It really did. And I, I, I kind of had a lot of not failures, but in pole vault, it's, it's looked at. So there's this thing called no hiding, which basically means you don't make it over any bar, um, which you have to make it over one bar to get entered in the competition. And through this experience, I no hided for the first time in my life. And I saw that as a big failure. Um, I'd never experienced that. And it was it was devastating at the time. Like now I look at it and it's like, okay, whatever. But right. at the time, it meant a lot to me. Um, so yeah, so this it just was affecting me in so many areas of my life. It was affecting me socially, um, even just in school, my ability to focus because I was preoccupied with thinking about what I was going to eat for dinner that night and making sure it was exactly what they told me to especially being someone who has chronic anxiety growing up. So this was already triggersome to me. It just was a different kind of anxious thought that I'd never experienced before. Um, so once I left the team, you know, it kind of subsided a bit and I got help from a naturopathic doctor um, to help reduce my inflammation. Um, but I still 
was quite restrictive. However, I wasn't starving myself. I was just more about selective about the foods I was eating um, and more preoccupied with having like gluten-free, dairy-free. However, that's what I needed to get the inflammation down. Um, so after all of this, you know, things subsided and then it wasn't until I had some really bad health issues, um, the year of COVID. So November of 2020, where I experienced a colitis flare up. Um, so basically I had internal bleeding in my intestines. I still don't know the root cause, but it ended up getting me in the hospital and very sick for many, many months, um, which automatically led to a lot of weight loss and inability to eat a lot of foods. So the journey has been long. However, after that, it really forced me to kind of listen to my intuition and figure out what made me feel good, what I could eat, what I couldn't eat. And um, still to this day, you know, I still have gut issues. I still don't know what the problem was or the damage that's been done. Um, But it took me to get to a low, low point to really push through and get get perspective on everything. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that whole story. I feel like there's so many little things that I want to dive super deep on in everything you said. Mm-hmm. This could go so many ways, but you mentioned that you also have like had anxiety your whole life. And so yeah. have you seen that in your research as well? Like this link between mental health and and anxiety perfectionism, because I mean, I'll share a little on my story as well. And I've talked about this here and there on the podcast, never done like a full deep dive on it, but I had a similar experience. It was earlier on in high school and it wasn't necessarily, I, I never, like you, got diagnosed and never really saw a doctor and, you know, checked all the boxes, but I'm pretty sure it was an eating disorder, whatever you want to call it, disordered eating, eating yeah. disorder. It was not good. And um, it never for me was like about the physical. It was like a mental thing. It was this perfectionistic control piece. And mm-hmm. I'd love to know like if you found in your research anything with that or just in your opinion, like is there a way to even have that happen if you don't have anxiety or perfectionism? Because I feel like they just go hand in hand, in my opinion. Yeah, that's that's there's so much to unpack there. So with disordered eating, what the science shows is those who are um, more heightened to anxiety or depression or more are more likely to develop negative associations with food. That And I'm just going to talk about my personal experience because it's easier for me to explain it. But for me, anxiety is always about gaining control because as we know, what anxiety is, is fear. And I've been someone from a young age diagnosed with um, anxiety disorder off the bat, literally when I was five. So I've always had anxiety and it's always flip-flopped from what it was from a young age. It's just different kind of things and phases throughout my life. I'll I'll kind of outgrow something and, you know, I'll move on to the next anxious thought that I, I want to get control over or that fear. But with food, it's about that sense of control and, What we also see in the research with anxiety is that when there's a lot of chaos going on in other people's lives outside of their food, they resort to food for a sense of control because it is something they have control over. So if there's a lot of anxiety about school or your job, those are 
things that really, they are in your control, but you're not the one marking your test or exam. That's the professor. So somebody in that situation who has heightened anxiety and obsessive behaviors, they're going to resort to the things that are in front of them that they can grasp onto. And as we know, food is one of those things. And that's why so many eating disorders or disordered eating habits start in college or high school because that's when the pressure is on with these things. And I think that it's just not talked about enough that like if you have some sort of control problem or anxiety, like it's so important to to instill good food habits, I guess, and to teach people how to have a good relationship with food to kind of prevent this on – some level. And I know it's not fully preventable always. And it's also just sometimes people have to go through what they go through. But I think that there's so many instances that an eating disorder could have been prevented. Yeah. And not everyone with anxiety will automatically have negative associations with food. I'm just saying they're more likely to, but it doesn't mean like I know people that have anxiety and could care less about like they're not anxious about food. They're very intuitive. So it really depends on the person. Yes, that's a great distinction. I think that what I meant earlier when I was saying it is that like most people I know and have seen who end up having disordered eating or an eating disorder also have anxiety or control things going on. And there's often those underlying root causes. Um, Of course. But it's so important, yeah, to kind of share the link. And I don't know if like through your journey with anxiety, you found some tools or little things that you do throughout your day to kind of manage your anxiety or stress. Um, But we love talking about mental health on here. So if you have anything that you want to share that's helped you, I bet the listeners would love to hear. Great question. I, it's, it's not the easiest thing for me to answer because I've worked with numerous like therapists from a young age. So I've, my ability to recognize my anxious thoughts has kind of almost become habitual now where I'm quite aware of it. Um, For me, though, one thing I always come back to is movement. And this took me a while to really kind of grasp because I looked at it as I had to move intensely um, because I was an athlete. I didn't really know what kind of other types of movement existed. Um, But moving your body, even just stretching five minutes in the morning, getting in touch with the present moment, it focuses you, it causes you to focus on your current present situation. And as we know, with anxiety, it pulls us towards the future. So what I do every single morning is I roll out my yoga mat and I do at least five minutes of something. Sometimes I'll do 30, but if I'm short for time, I'll just do five. And I just connect with my body to bring myself back to this moment. And it's a lot easier said than done, but the more I've done it throughout the last even three years, the better I've gotten at it. I'm still working at it, but that would be my number one tip. That's a great tip. And I also like to talk a lot on the podcast about like shaking as well for anxiety or just for stress relief. Oh, great one. That's another great way to like move your body and literally move the anxiety through you and out of you. I think that that is just so effective and people don't talk about it enough. And so I always like to throw that one in there as well. But movement, I mean, I completely agree. It's so important 
for your mental health. And I really don't even think it's something I do anymore for like it used to be to look a certain way, which I'm sure so many people Mm -hmm. can agree with and relate to. But now I literally don't feel good mentally if I don't like go on a walk or go do my like little Pilates routine, like something small, but it just has to move through me. And I think that there's so much to be said about that. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's why it's also so hard with everything we see on social media because there's so many ways to move. And even just like if if you're on Instagram or TikTok, you'll see numerous workouts and a lot of them are preoccupied to grab people's attention with associating it with how the workout's making them look rather than the feeling because we can't feel through social media. We can only see through our eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why it can get really hard to remember that. But you know, if you, the more you practice it and build those habits, it's really comes down to building the habits and it's hard work. I will say that, but if you do the work, it gets better. Totally. And speaking of social media, I think, I mean, with that instance, I I'm curious to hear what you think, because on the one hand, if people are using the way a workout makes them look and their bodies to get people moving, it's like, that's great. People are going to start exercising. That's good. But it's also probably like not coming from a great place. But at the same time, people are getting healthier. So this kind of plays into a bigger conversation on social media and like the way that people share things, the way that people market things and get people to do things. And I think that now health and wellness has become so trendy. And on social media, there's all these messages out there. And sure, a lot of them are getting people to be healthier and do things that maybe they otherwise weren't doing before. But it's also such a trigger for like the same thing we were talking about, disordered eating, eating disorders, like negative relationships with food and body. So what are your thoughts kind of on social media, wellness, and just kind of the way that the landscape is right now? Because I I feel like, you know, as a creator in this space, you must have some sort of opinion on it. And, you know, I do as well. And it's so, so complex, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So actually a lot of, so when I first started my podcast, how this all started was I was doing a communications piece for one of my courses. And as a user of someone in social media, this was before I really you know, I, I have my personal training certification. I used to use my account for getting clients um, and just sharing like workout stuff. And then once I kind of got into this program, I saw a bigger need and a bigger problem, which was this relationship and idea of these what I eat in a day videos. Um, I saw them as I'm like, why are people so interested in these? Like, I just couldn't understand why they were so attention seeking and why people wanted to see them. So I saw this kind of need to look into this. And so I dived into it and I did a article with um, Abby Sharp. If you're familiar with her work, she's a registered dietitian. Yeah. Yeah. She's a YouTuber. Um, She really combats a lot of misinformation on the internet. And I did this research kind of showing how these videos are triggering eating disorders. And this came out during a time when, um, here in Toronto, Sick Kids, which is um, our biggest children's hospital, came out with a study about the influx of children with eating disorders coming into their hospital. And if you look at what everything 
kind of shifted throughout this time is there's a couple things, you know, during COVID, everyone was left at home. And the only thing they really had control over was their food. But there also was a huge boost in TikTok and social media and these videos. And if you look at every single one of these videos, not every single one, but for the most part, you will see, and most of the time they're females, a female's body before you even see the food. So automatically to the viewer, they are associating that body image with what this person's eating. And so it ingrains when, especially in someone who's young and doesn't have the cognition or perception to understand how that may not be realistic or attainable for them or healthy, it's very triggering to the brain. And anyways, where I'm going with this is I think it's a huge problem It's why I focus my work and school on it because I see it. I've experienced myself even, you know, there's been times in the past where I go and eat and I'm like, huh, did this influencer eat as much as I did today? Like, and you don't realize how wrong those thoughts are until they come out of your mouth. Like, but we all have those thoughts and it's it's crazy how much of an influence these influencers really can have. I completely agree. I think you know, I always was like, oh, like I should be making what I eat in the day videos, like all this stuff. And then I was like, no, because I I feel like a lot of people in my field do that. And it's like, yeah, we're dietitians, we're educated, Mm -hmm. but I still don't want anyone to compare what I eat or what I do to what they do because we're all so different. Our bodies are so different and we're all so different on every day. Like we're women, we have cycles. We literally should be doing different things at different parts of our cycle. And that's a whole other conversation. You know, there's so much more that goes into it. Every phase of life is different. I just, I don't think that it it can ever be compared what one person eats to another person or what one Mm -hmm. person does for exercise to another person. And I think that there's a lot to be said about, you know, the issues that come up around what I eat in a day videos. And I also understand that like people get inspiration from them. They want meal ideas. They want to know what's healthy. And that's great. Like if you want to eat a better diet, but there's so many better ways to do it. You can find recipes, you could find kind of just a more general way of eating, but seeing like the actual things that people are eating, like you don't know if they're actually eating that portion. You don't know if that's even what they ate that day because they could completely be lying about it. And so it's just something to be aware of. Yeah. And I also think that it's, I, I, and I do think some influencers really do have deep down the right intentions with trying to inspire people. Yeah. It's just, it becomes problematic when it gets associated with the body. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like you said, eating is so different. Like someone can eat completely different because they might have different blood sugar levels and, or have different tendencies like ADHD. They might eat a certain way to help reduce, um, negative behaviors they have or with depression, you know, like there's so many different variables with food. And I, I personally think it can still be shared, but it has to, we have to share it in a way maybe that's less focused on the portion sizes rather than just the idea of what those ingredients are. Completely, completely agree with that. You mentioned an app that you were working on for this kind of idea of disordered eating and your whole project that you're doing in school. So I'd love to hear kind of what you're doing with that and how the app is meant to I don't know if it's meant to like help people with disordered eating, help prevent it or what it is, but if you could share, I'm super interested. 
Yeah. So this is with a team of two others in my program. So I don't do this just myself. It's not, I don't take full credit for this. I have an amazing team that I work with. Um, and we, part of our program at school is to do a capstone project, which is similar to a thesis, but a little bit different. It's more like a real life kind of situation. Anyways, um, we are developing a psychoeducational tool for disordered eating, and it will be primarily used in Canada just with all of the detail that's in it. It's based off of for um, Canadians, um, and we hope to share this with professionals or people that can use it. Where it's going to be distributed is kind of TBD. I don't even know if it will be accessible to um, people across the world yet, but it's still in the very early stages. And what the app basically does is provide education on what eating is about, why we eat, how it works in our body, the importance of exercise, but also how exercise looks different for everybody. Um, It's combating a lot of the misinformation. So talking about BMI, why BMI is not always a true indicator of um, disordered eating or eating disorders. And there's also an interactive part of the app, which is really unique. And um, I'm not going to share too many details, but it has to do with journaling and Um, changing thought patterns. Um, So it's inputting, you know, your own personal information and keeping records and reminders of yourself to enforce better behaviors with food. Um, So that's kind of the lowdown. It's a pretty cool concept we're developing and um, I'm quite excited about it. I don't know where it will go, um, but part of the whole program is kind of testing and learning and this whole thing is a learning thing. Uh, So I do want to emphasize that it is a learning project. Um, But yeah, so that's that's where we're, we're going and we'll see where it ends up. That's awesome. And I think that'll help so many people once it's developed and out in the world. So that is really, really cool. I think you're just in general doing such amazing work. And I am so excited to see what you do next with everything. I know we're both at a very transitional stage of our lives and in grad school at the same time and just kind of trying to figure out what to do next. So that could be a whole podcast in and of itself, but I know we're running out of time. So I just had a few more rapid fire questions for you that I ask everyone. Go for it. Um, But actually, before I ask you those, I have one for you specifically, because I see you posting this phrase a lot, and I want to know what it means to you. So make it happen. What does that phrase mean to you? What is the significance of that in your life? Great question. I actually get asked this more often than I ever thought I would, um, (laughs) because I literally wear a bracelet that says M-I-H, which (laughs) backwards, it does say him. So people think it's like for someone else. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I'm I'm a single gal. It's not for anyone. Um, But make it happen for me. It has to kind of tie into my anxiety. And when I start getting an anxious thought, It has to do with that recognition pattern of understanding that that is a distorted thought and not actually real. So where make it happen comes into play is I don't let those thoughts control me and I make whatever I want happen for myself, not those thoughts. Um, So it's really a way of me gaining perspective on things and also not letting my anxiety defeat me or pull me down. Um, so I have like reminders of this saying, and I, I don't have a trademark to it. Someone else does. I just, I just use it a lot, but, um, I had 
it throughout my apartment. It's just always really resonated to me. And, you know, if I'm having a bad day and um, I'm feeling just kind of low and feeling like I'm just, I, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to get to my goals. You know, if I'm talking to people around my life, they always come back to me and say, Emily, make it happen. Like you can figure it out. You can overcome this. It's not life or death situation. You will get through it. So you just have to dig deep and persevere. And I think that's what really the saying means. That's so beautiful. I love it. And I love that you wear that bracelet as like a little reminder every day of that. Yeah, it was actually a gift, but yeah. Oh, that's so cute. That's even better. So the rapid fire questions I ask everyone, the first one is, what's your favorite fruit? Ooh, watermelon. Love. What is your sun sign in astrology? I always get asked these questions and I don't know. I just know I'm a Virgo. (laughs) Yeah, no, that is your sun sign. It's like the main one. Okay. Were you born in August? I need to get better at my astrology. What is one book that changed your life that you would recommend to everyone? Um, I would say Between Two Kingdoms. It's a memoir about a girl who has leukemia and it kind of goes with the whole make it happen thing. She basically just overcomes and defeats her illness and conquers the world. It's a true story. It's a really good one. Wow. I've never heard of that book. I should definitely read it. It sounds amazing. Um mm-hmm. What is one habit that you do every day that's a non-negotiable for you? Habit. I think it comes back to that morning movement. And also that code and ties with walking my dog every morning. That's I have to do it every morning. What kind of Not dog do you have? Not only for her, for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a mini Labradoodle. Oh, so cute. And wait, so just a quick question on that. How is it having a dog and being a student and everything and balancing it all? Oh, you know (laughs) what? I really lucked out when I got her because I was still living at home and I just, the timing worked out. Um, But she is a support animal. So like, it's really not an issue for me. I just you know, she's a priority in my life and I just make it work. Um, you know, it is tough if I want to go out with some friends late at night and yeah. she's at home, but she's older now, so it's not as big of a deal. But um, it's if anyone who wants to get a dog, if you are responsible and you have the motivation to take care of a, a baby, you can do it. it. It is a lot of work. I will say that. But if you're dedicated right. to an animal, you can do it. love it and um what are your thoughts on thriving is the last question so this podcast is called thoughts on thriving and I would love to know what you think the key to thriving in this life is never giving up I thought you were gonna say make it happen (laughs) I I almost said that and then I was like no I should think a little more outside the box no I would say never give up and I think that has to go with make it happen yeah exactly you give up then you can't make it happen so Love it. Perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Emily, for joining me in this conversation. I had so much fun and think this will help so many people. And if people want to find you, connect with you online, where can they find you? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I 
loved talking to you. And I think this was a great conversation. Um, if anyone wants to follow me, you can check me out at Balanced Factor. Um, TikTok and Instagram, it's the same thing. And then you can also go to my website, balancedfactor.com um, and sign up for my newsletter if you want to stay up to date with podcast episodes as well. Um, the podcast is available on all platforms. So it's Balanced Factor Podcast. Amazing. Easy. Same name for everything. Yeah. So every day's consistency. <laughs> well, thank you so much again. And thank you everyone for listening. I hope you all have a great week and I'll talk to you guys in a few weeks.